Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to SITREP. This week, the political crisis in Belarus, violent demonstrations against an apparently rigged election as Vladimir Putin watches carefully. He's afraid that the West will take advantage of what's going on in Belarus to effectively uh, push the borders of the European Union right up against the borders of Russia. As the race for the White House speeds up, what would a Biden presidency mean for America's allies? And could the military be dragged into the increasingly bitter fight? Plus, a former head of GCHQ tells us about the need for principled spying. You know you're carrying people, the public, with you. That license to operate in a democracy is, I think, very important. And we'll find out why a Premier League club is adopting a Lancaster bomber. The sights and sounds from the former Soviet Republic of Belarus in the past couple of weeks resemble those in other Eastern European nations 30 years ago. Alexander Lukashenko has ruled the country for more than 25 years, but when officials claimed he'd won another landslide victory in elections earlier this month, huge crowds came out to protest against him and there were mass strikes. Some have faced brutal treatment as well. Lukashenko's appeals to Russia to save him appear to be falling on deaf ears. But while the EU has condemned him, it says any change in Belarus must come from within. John Everard was the UK's ambassador to Belarus around the time that Lukashenko came to power in 1994. I asked him what he made of recent events. Astonishment. This is a deeply conservative, with a small c, country. Belarusians joke that rearranging their furniture is a major trauma for them, let alone rearranging their government. They simply do not go out on the streets to demonstrate. That's not the way that Belarusians do things. And seeing these huge, huge crowds calling for Lukashenko's departure uh, really is quite startling to anybody who knows the country. Why has there been this shift then? You know, one of the great ironies of the situation is that the reasons for this shift are almost the same reasons that brought Lukashenko to power in the first place. Uh, he came to power on a wave of public anger against the ineptitude of the previous regime. This was at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union and in favour of economic stability. And now it is precisely that same cocktail that is threatening him. Although the initial driver was uh, anger at Lukashenko, anger specifically at what is widely perceived to have been a stolen election, that has now been fueled further by real anger against the treatment of uh, demonstrators by the security forces. Belarusians are generally quite placid people, and seeing their sons, their husbands, their brothers beaten up horrifies them, or it would horrify anybody, uh, but particularly a country where such violence is very rare. You were in Belarus when Lukashenko took power 26 years ago. Uh, what can you tell us about the man? Talking to him was rather like talking to a rather gruff foreman on a UK building site, you know, the kind who's very heavily built, barks out orders to idiot workmen. He was very much in that mould, and you could see that he'd been a collective farm manager. He's appealed to Russia for support. How supportive do you think Vladimir Putin is willing to be? The Kremlin spokesman said that uh, Russia saw no need to intervene in Belarus uh, militarily or otherwise at present. What uh, Putin's spokesman was saying was 
thanks but no thanks, we will stay on the sidelines and we have no intention of intervening directly in Belarus anytime soon. What he is worried about is not instability within Belarus, it's foreign intervention. He's afraid that the West will take advantage of what's going on in Belarus to effectively uh, push the borders of the European Union right up against the borders of Russia. Now, I don't think the European Union has any intention of doing any such thing, but it's interesting that that is what he's trying to stop, not uh, that he's, he's trying to save the skin of Alexander Lukashenko. It's felt like the momentum is shifting towards the protesters. Lukashenko, though, seems like a man who's unlikely to ever willingly surrender powers after, what, three decades. So what's going to happen? That question is way above my pay grade. What's going to happen? I think it's still all to play for. Lukashenko's made clear that if he's forced from power, uh, you will find the pairings of his fingernails on the doorknob of the presidential office. He will not go quietly. He told one group of demonstrators they would have to kill him to make him go. Perhaps one might think that was an unfortunate invitation. If the protests continue in their current momentum, the country will simply become ungovernable and people within the administration will find some way to ask him nicely to leave if the protests maintain their current momentum. We can't be sure that that will happen. Already there are signs of a slowdown, that support for some of the strikes seems to be ebbing. And it's possible that the protests simply run out of steam, in which case, of course, Lukashenko's won. Former British Ambassador to Belarus, John Everard. Well, joining us on the programme today, Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and as always, BFPS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Christopher, we've heard Lukashenko claim this week NATO forces massing along the Lithuanian border, a claim dismissed as a desperate lie. He in turn says that he's got combat-ready units at Belarus's western borders. I mean, what happens in Belarus is clearly a big concern for the alliance, isn't it? It's also a realisation there is not a great deal that NATO forces are going to do. Um, they're certainly not politically geared up to give the order to, to invade. They see no particular reason to do so at the moment. But there is in Belarus, also for ages in Russia, concern that NATO forces have gathered and reorganised in some way so that they're geared to be based further forward uh, than they have been beforehand. So it's not so much that they're a threat, but they're a concern. Mike Clark, I mean, at the moment, everyone is saying the solution in Belarus must come from within, but the wider politics of this region mean other people have a stake. And I guess people are looking at what happened in Ukraine, what, six years ago? Yes, absolutely. I mean, remember that in uh, 2013, the EU was extremely clumsy over Ukraine in creating this image that the EU was trying to draw Ukraine in. And that, as it were, created another colour revolution. I mean, Putin hates the idea of these colour revolutions, you know, the Rose Revolution, the Orange Revolution, the Blue Revolution, all of these revolutions that have gone through Central Asia and Georgia, Ukraine, which he thinks the West is behind all of them. Now, that's not true, but that's what he thinks. Um, and he genuinely thinks that. He's not pragmatic about these things. And so I think that the EU has learned this time round from all the statements that it's been making that it must make it very, very clear that the EU is not trying to get involved in this in any way, neither is NATO. This is all to do with an internal process, whether, you know, Svetlana Sekhanskaya is able and her husband is able to somehow run a transition government. 
will be a matter for the Belarusians themselves. And in a sense, what the West is saying is we don't mind if Russia intervenes if it's just to get rid of Lukashenko, as long as whoever then arises has more popular legitimacy. We'll stand and watch that happen. And Putin, in a sense, has free reign to pressure Lukashenko as much as he wants to. And clearly, Putin wants him out of the way, but he needs to engineer it in a way that doesn't look like, you know, the Czech crisis of 1968 or Ukraine in 2013, 2014. Let's move now from Europe to the United States, where the pace of the election campaign is stepping up. Joe Biden has been formally adopted as the candidate to challenge Donald Trump in November. To beat the incumbent, the former vice president needs to appeal not just to traditional Democrats, but some of those who back Trump in 2016. This week's virtual Democratic National Convention heard from, among others, former First Lady Michelle Obama. Internationally, we've turned our back, not just on agreements forged by my husband, but on alliances championed by presidents like Reagan and Eisenhower. Mike Clark, that appeal to restore broken alliances, it, it might well go down well in London and Paris and Berlin. How important is it, though, to US voters? Probably not very, in the sense that it's another expression of the idea that Joe Biden is not Donald Trump, um, that a Democratic president will put right some of the damage that they say has been done over the last four years. I think we've got to realise that although a President Biden, if he is elected, will certainly set about mending fences, it still will be a different America that we are dealing with. The idea of, of the, you know, the America of George Bush or still less the America of Bill Clinton is not now the America we will um, have as a friend and ally in the 2020s. And I think we've all got to wake up to that. It's no good for the allied powers just to sort of hold their breath until the end of the Trump era. Things have changed in America, not just because of President Trump, but because of the phenomena, the general phenomena that he represents and which is put in there. I mean, Christopher, the rest of the world will be watching and asking what a Biden administration might mean for a US approach to institutions like like NATO. I, I guess they can take some, some big clues from when Biden was part of the Obama administration. If you talk to people in NATO, they say, well, we don't actually actually have to do as much about Trump as people think we have to do. You know, you're not going to change uh, American policy on China. It's quite too easy to overreact to what we think of being American foreign policy and how it involves us. Polls have... Uh got some people asking what if Donald Trump loses and then refuses to go and he's already suggested he might not accept the result he's claimed that postal voting could lead to fraud even though there is no evidence to directly support that now two former army officers have written a letter to the chairman of the joint chiefs America's most senior military officer warning him just what is at stake the president of the United States is actively subverting our electoral system threatening to remain in office in defiance of our constitution. In a few months' time, you may have to choose between defying a lawless president or betraying your constitutional oath. If Donald Trump refuses to leave office at the expiration of his constitutional term, the United States military must remove him by force and you must give that order. This letter goes on to say, should you remain silent, you will be complicit in a coup. Christopher, it sounds very dramatic. It sounds like the stuff of movies. Do you think it's a, a, a realistic prospect that that kind of decision could have to be made at the Pentagon? Who knows with Mr Trump? The president, uh, if he decides to hang on, uh, hangs on to one of his most important offices and the fact he's commander-in-chief of the services. 
think more into into November and the circumstances of November. If he gets a thrashing at the at the election, under present circumstances he goes. If it's not quite a, a thrashing, he may raise difficulties, he may raise doubts, and that is what they're really talking about. But remember that General Milley wrote a letter, a public letter, to all commanders a few months ago when the riots were starting to break out in American cities and the president was threatening to bring the troops in. It was a reminder to all commands to tell all of their service personnel, this is from General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, to say, remember your constitutional duty. Interestingly, that letter did not mention the commander-in-chief. It simply said that all of the armed forces have a duty to the constitution. I I think it was one of the most important letters that anyone has ever circulated in Washington in well during the Trump presidency for sure and if I think the, the we did get to anything like this position I'm sure the military would stand on that side of its constitutional duty and if necessary say we will not take orders from the commander-in-chief we will take orders from the the speaker of the senate who, in the case of a national emergency, would be the next person down. Christopher, Professor Clark, stay with us. This is Zitrap. Next, we go to the RAF Museum in North London. It has lost more than a million pounds because of the coronavirus lockdown. Its response is to ask people to adopt artefacts. Chelsea Football Club, among those to step up, it has adopted a Lancaster bomber, to highlight one aspect of Britain at war. From the museum, Simon Newton. Britain's powerful Lancaster bombers, preparing for another night raid on Nazi Germany. More than 20,000 British Jews, 6% of the nation's entire Jewish community, served with the RAF during the Second World War. Thousands of them with bomber command. Many flew perilous missions on the Lancaster, facing certain death at the hands of the Nazis if they were shot down and captured. Here at the RAF Museum in North London, they have one of the few remaining examples of that iconic plane, aircraft number R5868 of 467 Squadron. And it's this famous bomber that Chelsea Football Club is now adopting to highlight its own campaign against anti-Semitism. Bruce Buck is the club's chairman. I I think our football club, and really all football clubs, do a lot uh, regarding uh, discrimination and racism and anti-Semitism. And we've done a lot of that over the years, but we decided that uh, it might be really interesting and really helpful to do a particular project long-term focusing on uh, anti-Semitism. I know a little bit about the Second World War history, uh, so yeah, it's an interesting project for us. Away and over the sea they roar, loaded with bombs. The Lancaster they've adopted is one of only 17 still in existence, and this one is particularly special. R5868 flew 137 combat missions at a time when the average life expectancy for a bomber was just 20. It became known as a blessed plane and in 1945 was preserved for posterity. For the RF Museum, this has been a tough year. In March, it closed its doors because of COVID. Lockdown cost it £1.5 million in revenue. But in early July, it reopened, launching this adoption scheme. Edward Sharman is the museum's head of development. Obviously, all of these wonderful aircraft and objects that you see around you weren't available for people to view. Staff weren't able to come in. It has been a challenge, and that's partly the reason for Adopt an Artifact being created, as well as other things like our virtual Hurricane 80K and also our Spitfire 10K race that would normally take place in late August at both London and Cosford has also gone virtual just because we can't do the things that we wanted to do. 
Chelsea have paid an undisclosed sum to sponsor the Lancaster. In return, there'll be a small plaque near the aircraft bearing the club's name. Chelsea will also work with the museum on projects surrounding the history of Jewish men and women in the Royal Air Force. Coming in over the target, tonight it's Essen. Of the 70,000 RAF personnel killed during the Second World War, more than 900 were Jewish. This adoption a mark of respect for that sacrifice and a way of highlighting the ongoing fight against anti-Semitism across the globe. Simon Newton with that report from the RAF Museum. A little later in the programme will mark an important wartime anniversary for the RAF. But before that, let's turn briefly to South Korea, where annual military drills with the US are getting underway this week, albeit diminished by the coronavirus pandemic. Meanwhile, the South Korean Navy is expanding. Uh, Christopher Lee, why has South Korea ordered an aircraft carrier and why is it significant? What it's doing is the F-35 Bravo, the Lightning, which is the aircraft that's in the Royal Navy's fleet. It wants somewhere to get into that business of being airborne, where it sees the threat from China, from possibly North Korea, uh, growing all the time. And so it's ordered uh, an aircraft carrier that can take 20 of these aircraft, the F-35s. It's moving into a different area. It's also, by doing so, uh, restructuring the political uh, visions in in that part of the world. Professor Michael Clark, with the UK widely expected to send its new aircraft carrier to the region uh, early next year on its maiden deployment. Uh, that presumably runs the risk of, of, of raising those tensions with North Korea even further. Uh, it might, uh, but it's much more likely that it will cause a spat with China. The Royal Navy's um, plan to send the uh, Queen Elizabeth into uh, Pacific waters next year will be politically charged, but equally it's reassuring to our allies, to the United States, to Japan, that Britain intends to be at least visible in these waters. And, uh, you know, coming on Christopher's point, um, if the South Koreans are going to deploy F-35Bs, uh, which they are, it means that they can operate off a British carrier. That's an interesting prospect for the future, as indeed um, could uh, in the future Japanese aircraft and aircraft from Australia and New Zealand. So you can see a, a sort of development of Western allied nations being prepared to deploy more naval power in the Pacific against uh, Chinese pressure and uh, North Korean craziness, to be honest, at some time in the future. All sounds good on paper. The danger for Britain, of course, is that it can get you pulled into events that you really don't have much control over. Let's move from military hardware to military information. The question, can there ever be such a thing as ethical spying, given that intelligence is in the end about extracting information from others that they would rather be kept secret, where exactly do you draw the boundaries? It's a topic that the former head of GCHQ has unsurprisingly spent some time thinking about. Sir David Omond has written a book called Principled Spying. This week he is giving a talk on the matter at the Royal United Services Institute. And when I spoke to him earlier, I started asking what he means by principled spying. It sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because spying is about stealing secrets and principles are about behaving properly. But in a democratic society, we give a license to operate to our intelligence agencies to gather the secret intelligence that's needed to keep us safe. And principled spying is when we have that 
structure in place, we've got oversight, independent oversight, and those who are doing the spying are very clear about what the limits are and what they are and are not allowed to do. If our opponents know the rules of the game that our legislators set, that hands them a framework for evading those security services, doesn't it? Yes, an autocratic nation that simply flouts or doesn't have any rules. Just think about the attack on Colonel Skripal in, in Salisbury. If you don't have any rules, then you can say you've got an advantage. I would argue that having a framework of law and an ethical sense within the intelligence agent, a strong ethical sense, is actually in a democratic society a great strength because you know you're carrying people, the public, with you. That licence to operate in a democracy is, I think, very important. In your book, you talk about the need for a robust moral compass for intelligence officers. How much of it comes down to that and how much of it comes down to, to politicians setting laws that they think the public will find acceptable? You've got a series of layers. You've got the the legislation, then you've got internal rules uh, set by the agencies that are much more detailed, and they have to be more detailed. And then you've got what I would describe as the, in, or you describe as the internal moral compass of the individual officers, the training they've had, how they were recruited, the sort of people that got recruited. And in a sense, you're relying on all of these working together. But the reason for emphasising the individual moral compass is that intelligence work often involves individuals working far away in rather dangerous conditions and where there's no judge looking over their shoulder and you've got to rely on them to make the right call. Do you think as the UK we have and operate principled spying or do we need to go further? I think we've got uh, it's an overworked phrase, a world-beating system, in that if you go around the world, you will not find as good a set of arrangements as we have that allow the collection of secret intelligence, very necessary for public security, yet at the same time give confidence that the methods being used are ones that of which Parliament is aware and that are regulated and overseen. What we will face, though, is, of course, technology keeps changing. Governments have to be prepared to go back to Parliament and say, we've now got this new technique, it didn't exist before, how should we regulate it? And there's a very good example at the moment with visual recognition systems, where the police, for example, can put up one of their cameras and identify suspects just from scanning the crowd in the street or crowd going into a football stadium looking for the terrorist suspect. Now, as a nation, are we up for that? Do we think it would add significantly to our security? I'd be quite in favour of it for big public events. But do I want little mini drones flying over every street in the country, continuously scanning our faces? Probably not. So David Oman, former head of GCHQ, Professor Michael Clark still with us. Mike, this is a, a tricky one, isn't it? It's setting an ethical framework for activities that often inevitably cross into behaviour that many would see as unethical, but, but to fight 
unethical and unlawful activity itself. Yes, and the, as they say, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, and that means that we have to be eternally vigilant about our security services. And I know David Oman would, would absolutely agree with that. We've got to worry about it all the time. We should never be complacent. I think the big formula that they have, which I take some faith in, they say that everything they do has to be necessary, proportionate and legal. And of those three things, necessary, proportionate and legal, the first and the third are reasonably easy. Is it necessary? Well, yes, the security service can see when something looks necessary. Is it legal? Yes, there's ways you can make sure it's legal. It's the middle one that's troublesome. Is it proportionate? Are we overdoing it? Is the, is the cause, uh, the cure worse than the disease? And those are the, those are the difficult decisions which um, security chiefs have to take all the time. It's proportionate. And that's what is not observed, generally speaking, in autocratic countries. I mean, their, their law and order is disproportionate to what they're trying to achieve normally. By and large, the public don't mind what the security and secret services do because it seems to be an OK thing to do. It seems such a sensible thing to do. Not everybody feels that way, though. Not only, There are some people who get really quite angry about the use of the security services and, and, and how that crosses over, particularly d- domestically. I tell you when it's, it is difficult. It's when you get the secret services, say MI6 and GCHQ, present to government a reason to go to war, which is proved to be untrue. But for the general work, uh, most people actually don't worry about it. They feel safe. And at the end of the day, that's what you're doing. You're trying to make the, the country feel safe because it is safer if you've got these organisations. Christopher, Professor Michael Clark, thank you both for your thoughts. Finally, it has been another week of significant military anniversaries. Chiefly 75 years since VJ Day ended the Second World War. But earlier this week, we also marked 80 years since the RAF faced the hardest day of the Battle of Britain. One airfield on the edge of London played a major role on that day, and Laura Macon Isherwood has been to visit. Today, Biggin Hill Airfield is a safe haven for restored Spitfire and Hurricane aircraft. 80 years ago, though, the planes and its runways were a target for German bombers. The 18th of August 1940 was absolute carnage here. Robin Brooks works at Biggin Hill Heritage Hangar and told me what happened at the site eight decades ago. At half past 12, 300 aircraft, German aircraft crossed the channel the coast, the skies over Kent were completely darkened with these massive armada of aircraft. About 500 bombs were dropped on the airfield, making it look like a giant colander. There were craters absolutely everywhere. With the Battle of Britain underway, the Luftwaffe had been ordered to destroy British convoys crossing the Channel, then to obliterate the RAF and its airfields. It was a campaign that culminated in 24 hours, now known as the hardest day. But Hitler's plans were thwarted. Our aircraft, lucky, had been scrambled earlier on, so they were up there at a height, ready to come down onto the Germans. It was uh, 32 squadron were flying Hurricanes, 16 squadron were flying Spitfires. So as the Armada came in from the south, our aircraft managed to come down between them and the the Germans actually lost 110 aircraft. 
It was a turning point in World War II, but for the pilots who flew the Spitfires and Hurricanes entirely manually, while trying to spot and shoot down enemy targets by eye at the same time, it was an exhausting task, as aircraft engineer Alex Monk explains. Even if you're just flying it in peacetime, you're just going up for a bimble in your Spitfire, that's still quite a, a lot to do. It's not something you do lightheartedly, so to go and fly one and complete a mission in it, yeah, not the easiest thing to go and do. You're aiming for like this tiny little speck going sort of 300 mile an hour that way. You've got to put a, a lead time on it, almost like if you were clay pigeon shooting, you know, you aim for the clay, but you don't aim at the clay, you, you aim ahead of it. But imagine that, but on steroids, you know, instead of sort of 30 mile an hour, it's 300 mile an hour. With Britain scrambling to find pilots at that time, some aircrew flew four or five sorties a day, each one with the potential for a dogfight. Don Sigourney flew Sea Harriers in the Navy and now flies Spitfires at Biggin Hill and says the adrenaline of taking one into battle must have been immense. Having sort of been in similar situations in, in the operation world in, in jet age, um, I think the feelings are probably very similar. Um, at the time, you're totally focused on what you're doing. You're 100% concentrating on, on actually achieving what you're supposed to be doing with the aircraft. I think you have to have a, an element of faith in your own ability and your, your invincibility, I suppose. If you got airborne thinking you were going to be shot down, you probably wouldn't be in the aeroplane in the first place. The RAF's actions on the 18th of August 1940 helped determine the outcome of the Second World War. Nazi Germany had planned to neutralise the Air Force, but Britain's aircraft, its fighter command structure, held out on the hardest day, allowing the Battle of Britain to be eventually won. Laura Macon-Ishwood reporting from Biggin Hill Airfield. And that is it for this week. Thanks to Christopher, Michael Clark, and all my guests. Uh, until next week, you can stay in touch with Defence and Security Matters via our Twitter account at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.